So welcome back everybody to our podcast, Brunch Money, with my friend Stanley and Manar. What's up, bro? What's up? How hey, you guys doing? Good, good, good. How good. are you? Very good, very good. So today, uh, we have a longtime friend, Lisa, which is doing currently her PhD in physics and astrophysics. Uh, Lisa, can you please tell us about yourself? And how are you, Lisa? You yeah, how are you? <laughs> First, how are you? Lisa. <laughs> Such an intro, sorry guys. Yeah, well, thank you for 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 for, uh, for coming on our podcast. Yes. And uh, I mean, we know that astrophysics and physics are not something that every uh, person thinks about every day. So I mean, uh, can you talk about about yourself and also a bit about the field in general? Yeah. Um, so definitely, it's not the type of job that you know kids grow up to to look forward to be, or it's not it's not one of the most like mainstream jobs out there. Uh, definitely. So I'm Lisa. I'm a PhD candidate at uh, at McGill University in physics and astrophysics. And what I do is basically I try to study the climate of planets outside of the solar system that we call exoplanets. Um, so as part of this, mainly nowadays, I don't do a lot of like even though I'm registered to McGill University and I go to school, I don't really do what you think school is. I don't take classes. I don't. Uh, I'm not. I'm rarely in a lecture or anything. Most of the, do, most of the things that I do nowadays feel mostly like a job. And like, if I were to like describe it, I'm doing like data science, but just for astronomy. Interesting. Okay. Interesting. And uh, you're doing. So you say you said doing data science for for um, for astronomy, right? Yeah. And what what are you trying to discover with exoplanets? Is it like you try to discover planets that other like maybe people can live on or you're trying to find like we're trying to find exactly <laughs> yeah that's that's always a big question about astronomy and astrophysics is like why are you doing it uh <laughs> how is that useful to humanity in general and there's many ways that i can answer this so i am definitely not trying to look for a planet that is habitable for us um simply because it would take too much time for just like civilization on earth to go to any of these exoplanets mm -hmm. so the goal here is not to find like a plan b <laughs> for earth at all but rather to find like how rare is it to find a habitable planet just to see like yeah. put in context how precious the earth is mm. um so definitely after like decades of looking for an earth twin we still haven't found any like planet that are habitable for humans um what i'm trying to do most mostly is trying to understand climate in like other worlds than the earth so basically when you try to understand anything about the earth you study yourself you study what's on the ground our atmosphere with our satellite with our satellites and all of this um this only gives you kind of like a single picture of what a planet should be right and by studying other planets, like exoplanets and the vast diversity of exoplanets that's out there, we're actually going after the underlying physics or the underlying like science that governs all of, all of okay. what's happening here. Okay, makes sense. Cool. Interesting. That's interesting. And I'm just like, wondering, uh, so you said like, you just, you're a PhD candidate, but like, as a 17, 18 years old, when you were going to CGIP, what made yeah. you like, yeah, astronomy? That's, yeah. that's that's for me. <laughs> <laughs> so unlike a lot of physicists or astrophysicists that you might meet, uh, I didn't have a similar kind of like path of interest as, as most of the kids. I think I was like any 17 or 18 year old when I was like in Sejep, 
I probably like was wondering what to do. My parents were probably pressuring me and going to med school or something. <laughs> uh, you know, like all of the kids, you try to keep your doors open. Yeah. Uh, so naturally, I went into like natural sciences and such. Okay. Um, but I kind of like, I don't know, I was kind of dodging away anything that was like life science or like health science related. So I went into pure and applied uh, mm. science at Dawson. Okay. And so back then, I don't know if the program is still this way, but you have your core science courses and then your last semester is kind of like pick and choose whatever science course you, you want to take. Yep. And at the last semester at Dawson, I was still very undecisive as to what to do in university uh, and all of this. So I think I picked like the most random bunch of courses. So I took like organic chem mm -hmm. just because I thought that it would be useful. Um, I took anatomy because I still wanted to keep this like health science open yeah, and then we I all get this mistake don't worry <laughs> <laughs> exactly. keep your doors open keep your doors open <laughs> keep your doors open um it's still a, a recurrent theme in my life but uh, the last course that i took was astronomy and that was like purely out of like i think i i had a i was good in physics and math and so i knew that i was gonna go towards like something uh that was like more pure and applied related so i took the astronomy course and it turns out it was the best physics professor that I've had mm -hmm. in all of Dawson um, and I don't know there's something about the way that this course was thought most of the time you take a physics course it's never the most interesting course especially in Sejep right you have mechanics you have ENM that's like brutalizing everyone yeah. oh. uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. you have you have like optics and whatever um, and then astronomy was kind of like, here's the story of the universe. Mm -hmm. The stars that you see in the sky are not just like blinking lights. They're like, they have a whole history to them. Mm -hmm. And so suddenly, like, it was a way for, it was like almost like science fiction. Um, I wasn't just doing science to like get through uh, the material and the books and like getting through the credits and all of these anymore. It was like more like, oh, Love this story. is. Yeah, this is a love story. This is like gotcha. this is like a science fiction. I feel like in I'm in the Marvel movie right now. <laughs> Very interesting. Yeah. So that's that's what uh, pushed me to go into physics uh, as undergrad. Cool, cool. And then, and then, is it from uh, from that? Do you think it's from that course that propelled all your interest in that field and like boosted your interest to go do a full on PhD in that in that field? Uh, I don't know that it's uh, I don't know that it's that linear of a of a thought process. So there's definitely like years where I felt more connected or like more interested in physics, and other years where I was just like, this is not for me. I am gonna be a computer scientist now. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, this still happens every now and then. Um, but basically, I decided to go into uh, a degree in physics at McGill, and it turned out to be the hardest thing I've ever done. <laughs> if I were to recommend it maybe um but i just realized when i took this like undergraduate degree that i did not know what physics was before mm -hmm. i enrolled um mm -hmm. basically your your physics courses in in universe uh, not in university in sejep or like even in high school doesn't tell you what research in physics is like all you know is maybe like you know newton's equations and uh, and then like how to calculate forces and stuff um right. but once I got into like a degree in physics, I realized that there's like, it's actually like a much more fundamental questions that people ask there. Um, and it's almost kind of philosophical. So okay. you have people who are studying like particle physics and they're studying like the smallest particle and how, like whether or not 
we even understand the science at like a subatomic level. You'll have some people, you know, digging into nuclear physics and trying to understand particles at like this like, like tiniest subatomic level. And then you have these astronomers who are using like space telescope and are working with NASA all the time. Um, and then you also have biophysicists that are trying to understand, I don't know, things like very similar to COVID. How do things spread um, and whatnot? So I learned that it was just like, it was a whole new world of like curious minded people. Yeah. Um, and I think this is what I got the most out of, out of my undergraduate degree is that just like learning to, ha to learning to have interest in things or like learning to, to make it, to be curious about things. So it's mm -hmm. a very wide field. It's not like we see in CJ where it's like, um, like f equals ma and like you have your <laughs> like flux or anything like this so like yeah. you said it's yeah it's but, beyond what you can imagine almost yeah but it wasn't also it, like all of this is from talking to the professors in the field this is not what they taught you in the courses either so in okay. the courses it was still a lot like uh but on steroids so i was taking a lot of math courses <laughs> okay. i was taking a lot of uh, physics courses it was a lot of like labs and assignments but it was only towards the end of my degree when I started to take research courses that I got to be exposed to, to, to a lot of different research. Okay, nice, interesting, very interesting. Okay, and I think I saw that you did a project at Caltech, if I'm not mistaken, right? How yeah. was it? And how did you get into that? Like, yeah, that's so... super cool. <laughs> yeah. So maybe I'll start with like how I got into like pursuing a, a PhD after after a degree in physics. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, basically, the physics degree was hard, but the one thing that I learned about uh, doing a degree in physics is that it's a very like uh, versatile kind of degree. Like you learn a lot of problem solving, you learn a lot of uh, of like even like project management by like managing your research project. And so these were a lot of transferable skills. So after my after my undergraduate degrees, I was ready to I don't know go into engineering or like finding a job more in like a tech oriented domain. And then uh, that year, um, there was a new professor in my department that was hired. Uh, and he came in and was like studying climate of exoplanets. So I just reached out. Uh, I wanted some research experience in the case that I wanted to do uh, grad school, for example. So I just wanted the experience. I reached out to him. We clicked very well. And he offered me to uh, do a master's with him. So that's when I, that's when I accepted. And then that's how I got. Uh, introduced to the world of like research and grants and all of this. So the one thing that you see a lot and, and the one thing that I appreciated a lot in, about being in the research field was how motivated everybody was. So everybody was always not just doing research, but they were also actively trying to find opportunities um, at other universities. They were always trying to expand our network beyond uh, McGill. And this is what I really appreciated about, um, about working with my advisor. And so at some point he was like, I think he had a couple of colleagues in Caltech and they were having this like fellowship. And so it's a six month stint where you go to Caltech and then you work with some scientists there. Um, they kind of like borrow you for a little moment. Uh, so I applied for these and, and got one of them. Okay. So back in like, I think nice. 2017, I got to go to Caltech, which is located in Pasadena, uh, where basically the Big Bang Theory is supposed to happen <laughs> funny enough they have a big bang theory street oh, in pasadena oh, wow. <laughs> yeah 
Uh, but one thing that people don't know about Pasadena, it's in the greater area of Los Angeles. So not only I was like in a cool, like very nerdy town, um, I was also very close to Hollywood and and all of these like cool places. Yeah, must must have been a great experience to uh, to be able to. It's like it's like a, almost like a student exchange, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yeah, it's almost like a student exchange, except I wasn't taking courses. I was like, okay. I was almost like an intern uh, over there. So I was over there. I got a mentor. They gave me a project, and I was working with them. But the cool thing that Caltech has that McGill or most universities in Canada doesn't have um, is they have a large ratio of researcher versus student. I think it's something like for every two students there is like a researcher or professor yeah. so the mentoring style is much more different but also the it, it was a research institute more than it was a university mm-hmm. and um and then through that they they also have a large amount of money so that means that they can have collaboration that we in canada cannot have so caltech is actually managing the jet propulsion lab of nasa uh, out in pasadena as well yeah so basically my <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is a big deal. If you Google it, I think Caltech is like one of the wealthiest university in in the U.S. Um, but it was just the exposure. Like suddenly, I wasn't just like doing research that didn't matter to anyone. It was like I am in like the whole universe of like these people are just thinking about space telescope and and like space exploration all the time. Nice. Like that's honestly very interesting, and like I'm pretty sure like you're curious sense was like just expanded to like oh i want to try this i want to try this i want to try this yeah that was definitely the like um sort of like the internship that made me realize that you know going after a job at nasa or like these like you know dream jobs that you think in your head uh isn't that unreachable most of the time you just need the right network Mm -hmm. and you also need to just go for it uh even though even though you know there's a there's always a chance you you won't get it but it, that period of time definitely felt like I was just like shooting darts and hoping that some, something would land and, and it did. Yeah, I totally understand. And uh, speaking about like uh, the different jobs that exist in astrophysics, mm-hmm. uh, like do you absolutely need a PhD or as a physicist, as a like an astrophysicist, like I, I know being a teacher, you probably need a master only, uh, mm-hmm. but what can you do with a bachelor? Like, let's say I'm, I, I'm interested, but like, I don't want to study more than a bachelor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So definitely um, a PhD is, you can think of it as, or you can make the comparison of uh, with PhDs in engineering, for example. So if you do a bachelor in engineering, you'll be able to find a job, just like you'll be able to find a job with a physics degree. Yeah. Um, a lot of the things and a lot of like the selling points that you can have for yourself when you're a physics student should be the same thing as an engineer. You're good at problem solving. You know how to code. You know how to do math. All of these, all of this jazz. Um, so if you only have a bachelor's degree, you might not end up in a field like astrophysics or physics, but you'll definitely end up in some like tech-oriented okay. uh, field. With a master's degree, uh, then you kind of like have a, a leg into the research world. And this is when things can start getting interesting if you're really interested in space. Um, so a lot of people become sort of like research staff at big institutes. So NASA even hires frequently uh, people who don't have a PhD mm-hmm. to, to work on like more engineering stuff that they might have. So building an entire mission is usually like a very big project. And it doesn't only require astronomers. Astronomers are only here to tell you, we want to look at this thing. Can you build yeah. 
an instrument that will allow us to do okay. this. But most of the work comes from engineers, computer scientists. They even have graphic designers wow. because, uh, yeah, because, you know, these NASA logos cost a lot of money to make. <laughs> but, uh, but again, a lot of the space industry, um, or not space industry, but astronomy is not a lucrative field. We're not doing this to, to generate any sort of money. This is mostly out of curiosity. So a lot of, the, of these things are also publicly funded. Okay. And so this means that we also want to share whatever we find with publicly funded missions uh, to the public. So there's a lot of efforts into trying to make things pretty and digestible to the public. Okay, cool. cool. Interesting. Nice. And uh, now you're doing a PhD. How, how was your path towards the, uh, you towards the PhD? Because if I'm not mistaken, at first you started as a master's student, right? Yeah. And then you, you just fast-tracked to doing a PhD, correct? Yeah. 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 How, how did that work out? Like, how, how does it work for like, let's say I'm, I'm a student doing a bachelor's right now. Is it, is it a possibility to just apply directly to a PhD or I'm not sure what's the next step after a bachelor's to get a PhD? Yeah. So this is a hard one. Um, there's, and there's so many paths and each like countries are going to have different things in Quebec, uh, basically, or in Canada, we have these programs. We have a master's program that's separate from a PhD program. And that's not the case everywhere. In the US, the majority of PhDs programs are just PhD programs. So you enroll into like a six year thing. And then like after two years, you did all your courses, they give you a master's on the way. Um, okay. And then here, and then you continue on. Wow. Whereas, here, yeah. Whereas here, it's a little different. You have to apply for both. So you apply for a master's, you complete your master's in two years, and then you reapply for a PhD, and then you continue on. McGill and University of Montreal and probably other universities as well also have what we call a fast tracking um, or a passage accéléré uh, kind of kind of deal. And so this is more, most of the time it's more of like an understanding between you and your advisor and the university. So the university might have some standard like you must not have less than a B or I don't know you must have an, a grade average of blah. Um, but if your if your supervisor is here to support you fast tracking, then 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 it can just happen seemingly. Uh, there's a lot of reason for why you want and you don't want to do this like direct passage to a PhD. So the downside of doing this is if you don't finish your PhD, you don't have a master's either. Um, whereas if you decide to get a master's and continue with a PhD, then you can leave your PhD halfway and still have a master's in your pocket. Right. Okay. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah. And for me, the reason why I fast-tracked is just because I had already done this year um, of, of my master's, but I was mostly at Caltech, so I didn't really got to spend the time uh, at McGill and, and really immerse myself in the community. Uh, so basically, it was just natural. I was already having a, a lot of ongoing projects uh, then that I knew would take a couple of years if I wanted to get closure. So I decided to enroll in a PhD. Okay, perfect. Makes cool. sense. Cool. So, there's a lot of things that people in general don't know about grad school, and this is especially true for um, a lot of like STEM uh, graduate school, is that you get paid when you're doing a master's and a PhD. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not, you know, I'm not spending a lot of, you're not paid a lot, but you're still getting paid in a way that you wouldn't have to have a side job or a side hustle to do your graduate studies. Okay. And I think one last question, in more the education background before we jump to uh, the job market um mm -hmm. what is a 
like a, a day in your life as a PhD student? Like, what do you do? Do you do, say you have no classes, so I guess most of the day is doing research, like, and how much time do you spend at the, I guess, the lab um, yeah. per day? Like, during, like a work week day, like, how, how is your day? Yeah. So this is a very good question. And again, if you talk to a different astronomy student, we're all going to have different kind of uh, kind of days. I'd say that there's th there's three types of astrophysicists. There is what we call the theorist. And so those are people who are just like making models and calculation all days. Um, those people are likely spending a lot of time in front of a computer making models. Uh, then what I am is an observer. So I get uh, I get data from telescope and I have to process them and try to tease out information about these data. Uh, and then and then you have the instrumentalist and those are the people who are building instruments. So they're more like an engineer and they have a lab. So I don't have a lab. Okay. Uh, my, my only lab is my laptop. <laughs> uh, okay. So basically a typical day for me, I'm either uh, I'll be working on a project. So sometimes I'll spend a full day kind of like coding and hacking away at my code building sort of like a pipeline to, you know, sparse my data, clean my data, also remove a lot of, I don't know, systematics and whatnot, uh, just so that I can have science grade data and then start thinking about what they mean, what th does it mean for the exoplanet. Uh, so those are my productive days, <laughs> my less productive days. Um, I also do things like writing up my like manuscripts for for peer-reviewed journal so whenever we have a cool result then we'll have to sort of like send it out to the public um but most of the projects that i work on are also large collaboration so i'm not doing this kind of like alone with my computer i have a team of professors and students that are all over the place uh, at all different institutions so there's also a lot of kind of like managing com communication between all of them and then sometimes I'll have like these type of telecons where we're sitting behind and then we have like a tag up meeting. We talk about what we've done um, and sort of like help each other out for progress in our research. Oh, nice. That's Great. honestly like, I thought you were in the lab like 24 seven. <laughs> no. no, not it's at all. And, <laughs> and maybe something that I could talk about as well. And this is probably one of the things that I, it has kept me in the field for so long is I didn't expect astronomy to include so much travel um, so not only am, are we doing this like data analysis and research at home uh, the importance is also to communicate uh, our research and data and results to um, both other experts but also the public so uh, during non-covid time every like a few months or so we'll have some international meetings where we're where we're gonna get together for about a week and and network and try to try to disseminate uh, our results and form collaboration. So there's a lot of networking involved uh, in a PhD as well. Oh, super it's, cool. it's really nice though. Um, I just want, really want to go back to the exoplanet part. Uh, um, just a little question there. Um, so an exoplanet is a planet that's outside of solar system, technically. Mm -hmm. um, what are the characteristics or um, let's say things that you need to categorize that planet as an exoplanet because there must be some criteria or things that you need to pass through, right? Yeah, there's a there's a whole team of, of, uh, of researchers that are only dedicated to categorizing exoplanets. So a lot of the times we detect them, but it doesn't mean that we know everything about them mm -hmm. when we detect them. We just know that there is something that could be a planet. So 
we'll categorize them most of the time uh, in, we'll give them names that are very similar to planets that we know in the solar system. So if they're like very large, we'll call them Jupiter <laughs> size planet. If they're very small, we'll call them Earth size planet. Uh, so sort of those are the current categories. We look at them in sort of mass and size. Okay. Um, and this is how people categorize them. What I do is I, um, I characterize them instead. So instead of going at like, you know, the nitty gritty of what kind of planet this is, I want to know what's in the atmosphere. What are the winds like? What's, I don't know, what's the climate like? And mm. this is a little bit more of like in getting to know a certain planet very intimately. Yeah. But do you like, if you see, because right now, if let's, let's say you find a planet out, you only see it visually. So technically by the colors, you know, what kind of gas they could be on the planet and what kind of like, let's say earth or uh, um, rocks that could be on that planet. But is there anything else you could make out of that information? Yeah. Like... So basically that's a good question. Um, it's actually very hard to take a picture of an exoplanet. Uh, you can imagine that like a star is fucking far away. Yeah. And, uh, and in order to sort of like see the planet that's next to the star, you need a freaking big lens to be able to have the resolution such that they're not on the same pixel. Um, most of the time, they're on the same pixel. So the way that we discover exoplanets for now, we don't even take a picture of the exoplanet. But one thing that happens when they orbit around a star is that they'll pass in front of the star and block some part of the star. So suddenly, the light that you get from the star is a little less. It's a little, it looks dimmer. And this is because there is a planet passing in front. Okay. And so we don't see them. We just like infer uh, that they're there. And if, if, if I remember from a course that I took last semester, the planet, the light that you see is like millions of years. It, it, it got to us after yeah. millions of years of traveling in space, right? Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> I luckily I study exoplanets that are a little closer than, oh. <laughs> than millions of, of light years away. They're about, I don't know, tens to hundreds of light years away. So it might just be like oh, yeah. light it's from just, just around the corner. Exactly. <laughs> just around the corner. So probably, you know, it's light from 1990. <laughs> I have like another question though, because exoplanets, from what I remember, they all have this weird form of numbering at the end of it. Like yeah. how do you, like researchers like give them a number for each of them? Yeah. Um, so this started... So exoplanet is a, is a fairly new field. We didn't know that they existed until, I don't know, 1995 or so. Uh, so they didn't exist before we were born. Uh, but before that, people knew about stars a lot. And there's astronomers that what they did was kind of like cataloging all the stars that they would see in the sky to sort of like build a map. Um, at some point, there's just so many names or so many stars that it's impossible to give like a different name for all of them. You know? Don't want to go like Steve and Pierre and <laughs> you know? random names. <laughs> um, so numbering them is is oftentimes an easy uh, way to to kind of like label things. Um, so uh, a lot of exoplanets these days are named after the mission that found them. Oh. So for example, if you hear about a planet Kepler ten b, it's a ten planet that was found by Kepler. Uh, um. Is is likely the case here? Okay. So oh, one day we might we might find like a dang three. Oh. <laughs> one day, hopefully. Yeah, yeah, I mean. Gotcha, gotcha, perfect. Uh, if we switch a bit of uh, like from education and like to the job section, I know we like covered it a bit. Uh, mm -hmm. Like um, I'm a, a 
like I'm, I'm I'm on the path of also becoming like an engineer, not like <laughs> uh, astrophysician. Uh, but in terms of engineering, like there's so much that you can do. Like you can do programming, then you can do project management, uh, maybe like even like some like basic management not necessarily project. Uh, so there is some flexibility, even though like I'm in computer engineering, I can touch some other stuff. Uh, is there such flexibility in astrophysics or is it like since I specialize in this, I'm like stuck in it? Yeah, so it's a it's a really good question, and it's a question that I think all physicists should ask themselves. Okay. I think a lot of the time, uh, a physicist or an astrophysicist or any researcher really pursuing a PhD is going to go into a very narrow kind of like field. You get very good at this very narrow thing, and you feel like this is the only thing that you know. Um, and people forget that along the way of getting there, you acquire a lot of transferable skills, like like uh, like you would do in engineering, for example. Mm -hmm. So things like, you know, uh, being able to collaborate with people, being able to collaborate at, with people at, at different time zones, um, to be able to kind of like make sure that your project goes from the beginning to publication, uh, to uh, basically being a professional learner. I think a lot of PhD students go in and you know that you're not gonna be thought everything that you need to know. So there's a lot of self-learning that happens as well. And so oftentimes I like to remind people that even though what their knowledge is very narrowed into this like, you know, purely scientific domain, there's a lot of skills that you acquired along the way. And again, I think, I think the degree that you choose at university doesn't define your career. It's more the skills that you get out of your time in university that will allow you to explore different careers. Okay. okay. Interesting, interesting. I honestly thought it was just, okay, done. Yeah. You're stuck yeah. here. <laughs> yeah. Especially and if you specialize like for so many years, like it's, I thought it was like, you're stuck. You're, stuck, you're stuck in that tiny yeah. field and you're not going to get out of it. But a, uh, lot, a lot of people stay stuck in the field just because they, they don't know how to transfer their skills okay. outside uh, of, of academia, but also because you've sent, you've spent so many years sort of like building a career and a reputation in a specific field, sometimes you just, you know, it, it gets harder to kind of leave the field. Um, so this is why a lot of people stay there. But one thing that people don't know, especially in physics, um, is that there's not a lot of PhDs in astronomies that are going to continue and stay in academia and, and work in astronomy. I think about like 10% of physicists will end up staying there and the majority of people will be uh, will be looking for an out of academia job. Okay. So you, you mentioned academia job, that was more like research and teaching, correct? Mm -hmm. um, after a PhD, is there, are most people after PhD doing mostly like research work or they have more technical jobs? I don't know, like let's say uh, if you uh, like programmer, for example, like or like more technical jobs than just researcher What's the path usually after a PhD for people who does a PhD? The, what's the path after PhD for people who do a PhD? Yeah, yeah, because in my head, like if you do a PhD, you become a teacher or researcher after. Then that's pretty much it. Yeah. Is there other options than than that? Misconception. Yeah. 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 So I think a lot of people aim for a professor job, kind of like this is just a way that you're you're being trained when you're a PhD. You're just surrounded by scholars all of all of the time, so it's easy for for a lot of uh, PhDs to decide to pursue academia. 
because it's what you're exposed to. Um, but as soon as I started talking to like physicists who did a PhD who are now out of academia, there's a very vast range of, of domains that people go into. I think the most, uh, the three most um, uh, popular field is probably data scientists. Like I said, the job that we do nowadays is basically like data science if you're dealing with a computer. Um, so a lot of people are going to go towards that. Some people are also going uh, to go towards something that's completely different, like being a quant researcher. But I don't know if you're familiar with what a quant. Quantum, mm. quantum research? No, no, no. Like a, a financial quant. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like it's a little more like a quantitative stuff. like stuff with uh, finance stuff. Yeah, basically Bro- like roughly <laughs> building algorithms to figure out like trading. <laughs> what the trading bots should do and, and things like this or predicting the market. Uh, that's also a large avenue for especially modelers um, in, in research to go to. And then the last one is... Uh... What? Oh. No, never okay. mind. I'm just trying to... <laughs> <laughs> All right. Keep going. Keep going. Um, and, then, and then another good avenue uh, for people is to go into um, consulting. Uh, so like consulting, like management consulting or any type of consulting, mostly banking technology, I'd say. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just because, again, you've got all of the skills, you've got the technical skills to do it, but you've learned to learn by yourself. Uh, And this is what a lot of consultant will, will the best, their most valuable skills are. Are like mostly paid also? Yeah. There's a, you'll see that there's a lot of people who are aiming for, you know, highly paid. Like I said, you're being paid while you're a graduate student, but it's not the best salary in the world. Um, likely, you know, it's it's going to be enough for you to survive, uh, but it's not it's not going to be enough for you to, I don't know, purchase a condo at this age. Thrive. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So to continue that, like, what will be like your next steps for you, like with your upcoming? Um, moves or like things that you're going to do like after that you're done with your PhD. Yeah. So one thing that people don't tell you when you do a PhD is the exist- the existential crisis that comes at the end. <laughs> <laughs> like, what do I do now? <laughs> yeah. like... Exactly. You're like, oh, I spent so many years in here and I'm like so immersed in this field now. Um, and it's really about making a decision. So the decision of continuing academia is very personal and is very interconnected to all of the parts of your life. Uh, so for an academic, a lot of the time it's kind of like expected for you to move around, go to the next university uh, in another town or kind of like move up the ladder. You know, if I'm at McGill now, I'm going to try to go to, I don't know, one of the Ivy Leagues or like somebody else that I look up to. Um, and the idea of leaving Montreal forever and having to rebuild a network in a new city was not necessarily something that was appealing to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for a while, I kind of went down the route of what can I do outside of academia? <laughs> so I did all of those things, interviewed for a data scientist job, interviewed for consulting jobs and all of these, um, only for me to kind of in the end realize that I really wanted to give a shot uh, at astronomy. And I feel like all of those years that I've spent, I think I've built myself a solid CV uh, that could be competitive. So anything. Anyways, I'm going to try to pursue a postdoc, is what we call the postdoctoral fellow, uh, here somewhere in Montreal or close by. Nice. Oh, okay. 
So cool. Postdoc is like, yeah, it's the I'm next level. Done, I'm not done with school. I just want to. I just want to like exactly. I, I, love I just that. want. No nah, man, yeah. for me it's like I love school too much. I, exactly. Give me, more. It's like, give me more knowledge in my brain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Again, a postdoc is not like you would think that it's very related to uh, to education, but I I see a postdoc as more of like a contractual job. So the university is giving you a like two or three year contract to come and do research for them, but you have the independence of doing whatever you want. Um, so it's basically just like a gig of I am an astro like. It's, it's almost being like an entrepreneur. You come in and you're like, I have this idea. I just need like the university to give me like this amount of money so I can do it. Okay, that's super interesting. Perfect. So Lisa, it was honestly a very interesting and it was a pleasure having you on the, on the podcast. Uh, I'm pretty sure a lot of audience are going to get more knowledge like, about not only astronomy, but like just the life after grad bachelor's. school. Yeah, grad school. Because it's, I think it's something that engineers uh, are like not interested in. Well, most I, I guess like because thankfully engineering gets paid enough, and they're like, oh, I don't need a, a master's. But definitely, yeah. it it opens eyes. Like I learned a lot, and I'm pretty sure a lot of people are gonna learn a lot as well. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Thank you so much for for your time for sure. Yeah. Any last comments for the audience? <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you for having me. And again, like I get it. After a bachelor, after four years of undergraduate degrees, or even more, you don't want to you don't want to stay in school forever. Exactly. Um, and and like I like I think of it, uh, grad school is not about you shouldn't see a you shouldn't think of it as like a way of getting a new degree. You should think of it as a way of getting a lot of skills. If I had been looking for a job after my undergraduate degrees, I don't think I would have had the confidence or the skills that I have now. Uh, if it wasn't for grad school. And the, these skills are not the technical skills. It's mostly like being able to manage a lot of people or like being able to interact with a lot of people, being able to kind of like decide, all right, this is an idea, I can just go for it and kind of like have the support system or at least an advisor that will like go, <laughs> yes, you can do it. Um, and I think coming out of graduate degrees now, even though I'm more knowledgeable in physics, I am a much more skilled professional um, so instead of going for a junior position in a lot of these companies, I'll be applying for a senior position uh, for a lot of these companies. So it's not all time wasted to stay in school, but also don't think that it's going to be like, I'm going to spend another five years sitting in a classroom and doing assignments because it's not that. It's much more uh, a liberal way of learning. Those those are honestly like motivating words at the end. <laughs> yeah. Maybe now Manar's gonna consider doing a master's. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, if if you're considering it, I would strongly suggest that you like find a job and like work at it for a couple of years, just so mm-hmm. that you don't like go into grad school as a poor student. Yeah, <laughs> good idea. And last thing there, what would yourself right now tell to? your younger self, young Lisa, that yeah. just finished CJEP. What would you tell yourself? Oh, oh. man, you're, Lisa, you're a changed woman. <laughs> I think, like, you know, Mara knew me when I was younger. I was in, like, I was a very, like, shy little girl um, and definitely not the type of person that would just, like, you know, start off projects or have the confidence to start off, like, different kinds of projects or, or different things that are thrown at me. And being immersed in kind of like an environment that people would always give you opportunities to apply for kind of builds this uh, this uh, 
confidence. Yeah, this confidence. Nice. Well, thank thank you, Lisa, for uh, for coming uh, and talking about your experience about grad school, uh, astrophysics, all that stuff. It was really interesting. Um, but yeah, that thing that's it for for this week. So same drill as usual, guys. If you liked it, leave a comment on our Instagram, follow our Instagram page, leave five stars, follow all that good stuff, and uh, yeah, we'll that's see it. You the next one. Yeah, thank you for thank having you, me, and hope you're hope you'll get a lot more funky uh, <laughs> <laughs> careers up here. All right. All right. Thank you so much. All right. Bye. 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 Bye.